Welcome to the Let's Talk Money and More podcast with me, Leslie Thomas. The aim of the podcast is to get us all talking about money more. Talking about money is still considered to be a taboo. We don't talk about money enough. Women don't talk about money enough. And that needs to stop. In this podcast, my guests and I talk about money, mindset, and how to turn around limiting beliefs, allowing you to develop a healthy, wealthy money mindset. Our relationship with money doesn't just affect our finances, but impacts every aspect of our business. And most of all, our own sense of self-value and self-worth. By mastering your mindset, you can in turn master the money you make in your business. Welcome to the latest episode of Let's Talk Money and More with me, Leslie Thomas. Today, I have a really special guest to share with you all. A musician who thousands of women have slept with, but it's not what you think. Most people have never actually heard of Llewellyn, but they have probably heard his music. Why? Because he just happens to be a multi-award-winning musician. And it's true. Thousands of women genuinely sleep with him every night. But he's not actually in the room with them. The Hertfordshire-born artist, who now lives in Ceredigion in Wales, is a prolific composer of sleep and relaxation music who has sent countless people into dreamland. Llewellyn has sold over a million albums worldwide and received millions of streams across digital platforms such as Spotify and YouTube. He has mastered a niche in providing hit after hit of heavenly music designed to uplift its listeners and transform them to other realms filled with wonder, magic and relaxation. Welcome to the podcast, Llewellyn. It's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. So I'm going to ask you the same question I ask all my guests. What is your money story? My money story? Well, it's it's quite a long one, really. Um, it's interesting. I'm going to bring my wife into it as well, because we're two very contrasting sort of backgrounds. I, I come from a long line of doctors, and my mum and dad were both doctors. And my 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 wife she grew up in quite a, a a poor sort of family so it's interesting how both of us we would describe our childhood as as very happy we weren't really aware of money there wasn't something i think we were more interested in because we were enjoying ourselves the kind of happiness part of it but she grew up in a very small kind of council house and i grew up what they called in in i lived in um hertfordshire i lived in a place called burkhamsted and in a place called Frisden Copse, which the the house my dad bought uh, in 1966 for 15,000. And I think it's worth a few million now. Unbelievable. And it's funny thing is, it was a big, it was a, it, it was a big, big, big house. Um, and you would have thought, you know, we would have had fantastic holidays and things, but we didn't even know they were, they were uh, on medical incomes. My dad was actually um, chief medical officer of hearts, beds and, and butts. And did okay, but there was never. We never went abroad. Um, my mum sort of inherited through her, her 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 parents, who were also doctors. And he was quite a famous doctor. Her father, he was like a chief medical officer in in Bristol, and um, and that was in World, World War Two. And he became honorary physician to the Queen and things. So it's all, all, all quite a big big kind of thing. Um, but they, there was never because that she was given like a converted farmhouse in North Wales. That was where we always went, a place called Cricket for our holidays and things. So we never kind of like, you know, had what you would imagine an exotic life of traveling to, you know, what was in, in you know, we're talking about the 70s, which would have been, you know, Spain and all these exotic places. It was always going to a freezing cottage at Easter or a dip in the freezing sea in, in, in the summer and that sort of thing. And my bedroom um, was a very small bedroom in this massive, I think it was like a seven bedroom house or whatever, and I'll probably be corrected on that. But the thing I do remember is being situated a long way from my school friends, because we lived so far away from kind of on the, on the suburban outskirts, that I could never meet up, you know, with them. I was always dependent on my mum and dad to drive me, which was always a bit of a hassle. 
And also, and people will go, this isn't a sub story, but we used, because I went to a, a private school, we only had one day off, which was a Sunday. Mm. So, and I hated sport, really hated sport. And it's very sport orientated. So you have like a Tuesday, a Thursday and a, and a Saturday. And it was kind of for me that when, when I did have time off, which was a Sunday, I was either cleaning cars <laughs> or I was raking leaves or mowing, mowing the lawn, which my father's attitude was, you know, you should be grateful for that because you live in this big house. You have this privileged life. You should be kind of grateful for it, you know. But of course, I never knew anything. I never knew anything different. You know, that was that was what I knew. And the same way with my wife. My wife, on the other hand, you know, sometimes meals on the table would be sugar sandwiches, and she would have like an old bath, literally brought in from outside, put in front of the fireplace. You know, but we both have um, happy childhoods and and that kind of thing from it. And my dad was always trying to ingrain into me, you know, you must, you must do well at school. You've got to get your O levels. There were O levels in those days, not GCSEs, A levels. And then you must go to university. And this kind of mentality came from because my dad was a working class um, boy and he was, he was from Yeovil in Somerset. Whereas my mum's family, as I said, came from quite a well to do kind of doctor medical, medical family. And because of this kind of, um, view that he had, he he felt because of the opportunities that came to him, he was a Bevan boy in the war, and the Bevan boys was because they conscripted a lot of people to go into the into the army, and it was Bevan who was one of the the MPs at the time. Said, "God, we haven't got any miners. You know, we've sent all the miners away. We've got to get coal." So they were called the Bevan boys because they were conscripted to either go in the army or the navy or go down the mines. And my dad went went down the mines. And after the war, they were given an opportunity to do exams to get into university, which was kind of an opportunity that was not, not granted many people. And my dad did really, really well from a working class situation. He got to go to Bristol University to discover medicine, where he met my mum. Met so for him, that was the only route you know, that he could think of, is you must do well. And he's like giving his sons the opportunity to to go to a private school and yet you know with me it was kind of I'm just interested in music that's all I wanted all I wanted to do you know when I said that they used to do a lot of sport at school yeah I I, I used to play around with that I would I would sort of say to the the teachers can I do two sports can I do swimming and can I do tennis and my my plan which worked very well is when I wasn't at, at tennis they think I was doing swimming and when I wasn't but where was I I was taking the afternoon off at home and I was playing the piano and, and I very much came, kept, kept to myself where I would be sneaking off to the music school to play music and that sort of thing. So I had friends, but I was very much focused at a very young age on wanting to do my music. And my dad became really frustrated with this because, of course, giving that background about working hard and having all these opportunities, he said to me um, when I was 16, he said, you know, do you think it's fair that we pay for you to be privately educated and you're just messing around doing your music? And I, so I, I, I said, I agree. So I, I, I left and I went to a comprehensive school for that very reason. And I think that was good because it gave me, um, it gave me a, 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 you know, both sort of spectrum. Perspectives, yeah. A private, you know, that, that sort of thing. And from that, I still just wanted to do my music. My father, um, Shortly after I did that, he passed away. I was only 18. He died quite young at, at sort of 58. And then I think my mum felt kind of what had happened to me at such a young age. She really wanted to sort of make me happy, you know, rather than force me to go and do something I didn't want to do. And I think she wanted me around as well. You know, she was quite, quite, quite lonely. Um, so she encouraged me with my music. And I inherited, this is again money, I inherited money from when my dad um, there was an orphan's pension, which I had to stay in education to still get, get that pension. Mm -hmm. But I inherited quite a bit of money from my dad as well, which I then went and spent, this is kind of in, in the early 80s, on electronic equipment, which in those days was very, very expensive. And around about that time, I got um, a record deal with a local record company. And I suppose this is the thing where I didn't put a value on what was really going on in my life at that time. There was suddenly, you know, this, this, this wonderful opportunity so I could have all this equipment that most people wouldn't have. And I was able to express myself musically and do that. And then this record company 
they were they would drive i didn't drive uh initially i i, I failed my driving test three times before i got it but mine but twice I, oh well, there you go, better <laughs> yeah. than but I, I i was being taken to these recording studios in london by by their drivers and in these studios there were these expensive machines like called a lindrum at those times which would sound like real sample drums and they would deliver these to the studios you know sometimes we were waiting around for this thing to come while the clock was ticking but they looked after me so well but it was one of these studios which was in um it was in luton actually i can't remember the name of the studio but the manager there gave me some really really bad advice he he said to me don't sign any more deals with this local company you you're good enough to get signed to a major like virgin and he said i used to do demos for elton john when he started off so of course a young man at about sort of 17 18 years of age my head's like Shh, you know i'm going to be this this pop star you know it's because of everything that just sort of happened before me i presumed that and so instead of staying with this wonderful local company that had supported me and developing my skills over the next few years, I refused to do any more with them, sort of, you know, hoping I was going to get signed to, to Virgin Records, you know. And that really then was, was, was kind of where my path changed to the reality, I think, with, with, with money, that I'm going to have to get a job at, 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 at some point, you know. And if I can't get a record deal, which I was struggling with, I got... Um, some big management. I, I was managed by, uh, there was an artist in the 80s called Howard Jones. Oh, I love Howard Jones. Yeah. Well, I was, I was managed by, by David, David Stops. He was a lovely guy, his, 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 his manager. And David said to me, you know, we're going to get you working with Howard. We're going to do some uh, recordings, which of course, having Howard produce them and this sort of thing, it, that was a, a, a great leg up, leg up for me. And Howard was a big hero of mine. But for one reason or another, I don't think Howard actually was that excited about working with me. And so that that diffused that whole kind of, um, you know, relationship with, with with David managing me. And then I got managed by uh, another company called uh, Smallwood and Taylor, who they were managing, I think, Iron Maiden at the time. And we did a big showcase up at the Nomis Studios, which is owned by Simon Fuller. And Nomis is Simon Backwards. And we did a showcase for record companies, CBS and EMI, and that like Spandau Ballet were recording in the next studio. It's really exciting, you know. And we went from Friday doing all these performance showcases to having a publishing company there, the management company that signed us, and CBS were going to sign us. And the lady from CBS was coming down to sort of meet us, and she did later on. And she didn't really click with us. She didn't think that we had the potential. And as of Monday morning, dropped. We had our management dropped us. That was it. You know, How fickle. Yeah. We yeah. went from hero to zero. Yeah. And then, I'm, of course, I'm in this situation again where I'm thinking, God, you know, I've, I've presented all my music. I have to start from scratch again. Um, and it's like that kind of wake-up call when it was, it was, it was quite, a, quite a shock. And I think I found the frustration with the music industry that I was – I, I'd just given and put so much into it. My soul was, was into the music. And to be let down on that massive scale was, was, was quite difficult. And I met um, my wife around about that time. And I think I just decided, you know, what, I'm going to focus my energy into a relationship because I'd, I'd never had serious relationships because mm-hmm. I'd, I'd just put all my, my heart, soul into your music. music. Yeah. And my mum was brilliant. She sort of said, well, if you're going to get, if, if, if you're serious about this girl, you better get a job, you know. So she got the papers out, you know. And I had some O levels, and I had had um, I had uh, A level, I think, in art and art and drama. That's quite arty, isn't it? Um, and really, she was she was just great. She was supporting me to go and get this job, and I went selling advertising space. And I then got a mortgage, and yeah, I started to realise how tough it was, you know. And my wife. She she had a job, but the day that we moved in, she was made um, redundant, <laughs> so she didn't have that income coming in, you know. And she did get another job, but I was always this person that I liked to stay up really late at night. And I found that our relationship was that she was just so tired and exhausted, we weren't having a life together. So I did say to her that just you know you need to give up work. And she was like, well, how are we going to cope? I went, well, we'll 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 find a way somehow of doing it. But we, we hit this time, which was very financially hard. I remember there was a, a little sort of 
like corner shop that we'd go to, we would get rice and we'd open a, a tin of <laughs> I don't know, some mincemeat or something that we'd have. In it. But I don't remember it being terrible, but we, we had, you know, we, we struggled. And I remember not wanting to let my mum know that we were, we were kind of struggling, you know, and this sort of thing. But I still remember us being happy. We even got a dog and <laughs> no, it was, it was this. And, and even then my wife was still, you know, I'm sure you're going to, going to do some living out of that, you know, of music of some sort. Because my main priority was not to be like a pop star. It was just to do my music and, and, and be at home, really, you know. And I, I, I do remember money-wise that having nothing, literally nothing in the bank. And I remember writing these checks. And at the, uh, I think it was at the Nationwide, there was somebody called Abby Golding. And every time that your, your check bounced, you'd get charged, not only would the money not go through, you get charged £20. Golly. Yeah. So I, I remember one morning, I think it was a bank holiday or something, or it can't have been a bank holiday because we got post. But it must have been the weekend of the bank holiday. And we got three letters. They were all from Abby Goldie, you know, and that's like they've all bounced. And there's there's 60 pounds, which in those days was the equivalent of 600 pounds. I'm like, oh my God, you know, just what, what are we, what are we going to do? And we discovered credit cards. <laughs> and so we thought, well, this is really good. We can sort of like, live off credit cards we went down that that slippery slope of building up you know that and it was around about that time that my my sister who was a massager and she said to me um do you know what i i i I have these cassette tapes that when i'm doing massage of this kind of music in the background have a listen to it she gave me one of these cassette tapes which is kind of you know relaxation music but i remember playing it thinking god this is this is awful People pay for this. I could do this. Light bulb moment. Yeah, and I yeah. and I and I had I had a, my studio and my equipment that I'd sort of built up. So I thought I have a go at this. And my wife, um, who sang as well, I got her to to sing along with it, multi tracks. So it sounded a bit like Enya actually. And we would go off to these shows. I would run the cassettes off the night before. Um, there used to be these shops called Athena. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Yes. Yeah. And I was a bit naughty. I used to sort of buy like a, a, a picture from that, shrink it down and make it into a cassette cover, you know. So I'd print those off at the photocopiers. I'd run off my cassette tapes. And we would go to these mind, body and spirit shows to, to try and sell them. And the incredible thing was people loved them. And I, I would sell. I would clear out all my tapes. And even people like I remember my next door neighbor that used to hate my pop music. She used to say, I love this relaxation music, you know, and. And that kind of then we were thinking there's something in this. And I then went to the next stepping stone. I contacted a, a company that did, did that kind of music. And I, I thought they might like me to do some behind the hypnotherapist. But then they wanted me to also do some music on, on, on its own as well. And that, that did really well. I did about 10 albums. And I, I remember when I first started off, an album would be £300. And that would be for a buyout. That was it. So I, I was thinking, okay, that's not quite enough money. And I wanted to do a bit of, um, bit of print broking as well because I, I got some experience printing and the work that, I, that I'd kind of done. So I was in this sort of scenario where I was still kind of at work and I was still kind of doing the music. And the job that I had, I worked with a company that we were doing quite, uh, I was doing quite well. It was a company called Zcard. And they were called Zcard because they still make them today. Um, but they're a patented product. It's like with two, two credit cards together. And you pull them apart and there's like a folded sheet. I'm sure you. Oh, yes, I know the one. Yeah. They're called, they're called Z cards. And I worked for this, uh, this company and I got, I got some good money coming. I was the first one to get a million order. There was like, um, there was a, a too good to be true. It was like an ice cream. And I got them to put one of these things with a calorie counter sort of on, on the front of it. And that was, that was kind of cool. And I, I remember sort of at late at night, just trying to think of all these ideas that I could sell to these companies. And one of, one of the, the interesting ones, I managed to get um, uh, a meeting with Evans Hunt Scott, and they were the agency for Tesco. So I, I, I remember sort of like, you know, a couple of nights before sort of thinking, you know, what, what would Tesco do? How would they go for something like that? And I came up with this, uh, with a few ideas. One was that a lot of um, ladies, when they, they go to petrol stations, they like to go to supermarket ones because they feel a bit safer. Mm. So I thought we'd have a map of, map of Britain when you open this up. And it would show you all the petrol stations for Tesco's or whatever. And then you could have some coupons and things like that. I thought, yeah, they might go for that as an idea. And then I had this other idea. I thought, well, 
if you if you go shopping and you spend say twenty pounds, they you'd open the sheet up and inside you'd scan a barcode with twenty pounds on it, and you scan another barcode with forty pounds or whatever. So the more you spent, they could like give you a, a reward for that. So it it, it could be like um, you know re- really a loyalty card. And I thought yeah, I think let's call it a loyalty card. So I went ahead and I did this presentation to to Tesco's and showed them the ideas and they said, oh, thanks very much. We'll we'll get back in touch. And Tesco's came back and uh, to Z card where I was working at the time. And they said, um, we really, really love your idea of a loyalty card. Um, and we'd like to trial it. But we, we, we need we need to basically have this other card. That sort of fits into it somehow, and I was thinking, okay, so we, we had like this plastic band around it to fit the card in, and, and this sort of thing. And in the end, they came back and said, we, "Well, we love your idea, but we don't actually need your Z card because we could do it all just on one one card." <laughs> and is this where Club Card came from? Yeah, and then and then what what ha- then what happened was that they went and trialed it. They gave us an opportunity to pitch for doing just the production of cards, but you know we weren't in that business. We couldn't compete with these companies that produce millions of these cards. Yeah. And I think it was Brighton or Bournemouth they did it at the trial, took off great, and then they put it through all their stores and they became the number one number one outlet. And then all the other stores followed with their loyalty cards as as, as well. So it was a it was interesting. My wife knew about it, but of course, you know, I got nothing. I didn't earn I didn't earn, any, earn anything from it because it's just a, an idea at you, the end. Yeah, you've sparked something in them. Yeah. So, you know, the, from that, we, we I was I was in this kind of job and I was thinking, do you know what, this is? I, I quite enjoyed going to blue chip companies. I went to quite a few of the, the big companies, which was quite quite fun to experience. I remember going to McDonald's. Their head office was like in an un, next to an under, you had to go into an underground underground station to get to it or whatever. And I remember like with, with, with them selling this idea, I thought, you know they'll they'll go for the, all their their drive throughs and this sort of thing, and they they just went for a little leaflet that basically showed you how to clean their coke machine because their staff didn't know how to clean the coke machine. <laughs> they only ordered like five thousand of these things. It's really you never know what they were going to do. And at that time, um, my wife she was she was pregnant, and this was our, our daughter Holly. And when she was born, we were um, we were in Stoke Mandeville Hospital. And unfortunately, Holly wasn't very well. I remember that there was there was a phone call because her stomach was getting very, very big and, and kind of swelling up. And they were a bit concerned. They said, well, I think we need to do an emergency operation at the John Radcliffe uh, Hospital mm. in Oxford. So we all went went over there. And um, unfortunately, she was um, she was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. That the, the swelling is, is is one in ten of cystic fibrosis children get a thing called meconium ileus which means that the, the, the baby poo gets stuck. You know? And that's what happened. And a bit of a bowel had sort of rotted. So she had mm. to have this operation. And we were, we were in hospital with her um, for five, five weeks while she had this, op- had this operation. While I was there, the company that I worked for, they were getting really kind of frustrated. You know, when, when are you coming back to work, James? And they just expected me to be, be off for a few days, you know, while, while the baby was born. And, they were suggesting that I commute <laughs> from the hospital to work and this sort of thing. And I, and I decided there and then I made it easy for them because I've worked with them for, for a few years. So I, I said, right, I'm just going to quit. I, I resigned, you know. Yeah. And I had a company car. So that went. So no company car. We'd sold our house and we were going to get um, a place with my mum. But her house sale had, had fallen through. So we had no, no home, no job, no car. And I had a dog and a sick, sick baby. And we went, <laughs> went back home living in my old bedroom. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Full circle. Yeah. So yeah. literally rock, rock. So the only way, the only way is, the only way is up, you know. And what that did, what my, my, my baby did was forced me to give up and be able to do my music full time, you know. And I did uh, a, a bit of print broking. I'd done some work with, um, with the Z card, with a, um, a company called Swatch, um, who, who oh the watch company, yeah, yeah, and they 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 were one of the first people to do texting, which sounds incredible now, but they they come up with this idea that you could text somebody from one watch to another watch, but when you first text, you only could text numbers, you couldn't text letters, 
So, you know, if I sent, sent a, they call it a beep up. So if I sent you a beep up, they didn't call it a text. If that had kept, we'd be beeping each other, you know. <laughs> yes, sir. But, but they, they would call it a beep up. So if I sent to you like 391, you, you wouldn't know what that meant. So you'd need a little code book. And that's what I produced was these code books that would say, hello, how are you doing? Kind of, kind of thing. And there was a lovely lady there called Heidi Bockman. And I rang up Heidi and I said to her, um, look, I, I produced a lot of these, these for you, explained what had happened to, to my baby and, and, and my situation. And I said, it, it's, it's up to you. If, you. if you carry on working with me, I'll use the same printers and, and so forth. It's, it's up to you, basically. And she said, I'd love to, I love working with you, James. I'll give you the, um, or Llewellyn. I wasn't, wasn't known as Llewellyn then. I'll, I'd love to give you the work. So it was, it was like that, that helped along with doing these albums at sort of 300 pounds a pop kind of thing. And I, I produced, I think, about 10, and then I needed to write under a, a, a different name. So the catalogue didn't look like they were all – I called myself James Harry because that was my, my middle name. And um, because my family tree goes back to the last native prince, Llewellyn. Which is amazing, yeah. You could say Llewellyn better than I can. <laughs> Llewellyn. There you go. <laughs> and um, my mum my, my my came up with the idea, why don't you call yourself Llewellyn, you know? I think if Prince didn't exist, I would have called myself Prince or Prince Llewellyn. <laughs> so I, like I, I, t- I, took, I took that name and I did a lot more albums. And then I got signed to New World Music. And New World Music are one of the biggest producers of this relaxation kind of healing music. And I was lucky enough to get signed to that. And my money then went from £300 an album to £2,000 mm. an album. And they would also do albums with me that I'd get royalties on. So that, that was really kind of cool. And I did a lot of music for them. And then I remember sitting down at the table one and having the invoice book. And this went sort of like for four years. I had a contract for four years. And I wrote out all the invoices, like every single month for four years. And I went, we're okay for four years. I'm a recording artist, you know. And in that time, um, I got, because I was with this label, which was called New World Music, the chairman of the company was a guy called, called Neil, Neil Worgen. Very, very clever, successful businessman. And we developed a brilliant relationship. I ended up, even though I was an artist, I ended up being like the kind of A&R guy there. Neil would always sort of send me stuff to say, what do you think of this? Should we release it or not release it? You know, which obviously caused a few problems with the other staff members that were, that were working there. They felt I would like her, his, his long lost golden boy or something. You know, But we just built this fantastic rapport. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to develop this company in, in America. And he went and got um, some investments, some very, very big investment to go over there. But the bank caught him out by actually saying at the end of the day, we'd like Americans to run it because we don't think you've got the experience. And the whole point was he wanted to go to America. And he was furious at that. I can so imagine. he approached me and he said, would you like to, would you like to start a new record company? And this was 2005. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love, love to do that. So we together, with his experience, with my experience of the music and obviously the relationship we've done, we developed Paradise Music in, in 2005. And that, over time, grew to be, yeah, an international. He, he, he got, after I think after a couple of years, he then went to the States. He went to live in Florida, where he is still today. And I was running the UK and, and Europe, and he was running running the, U, the US. And yeah, Paradise Music just grew to be one of the biggest producers of, of relaxation and, and healing music to, to this day. And one of the things that's really, really interesting um, for, me as a, for me as an artist, that I always felt that security of being with a record company. Because you do, don't you? You sort of think, you know, like all those years of wanting to be a pop star. Oh, if I get signed by Virgin, but, but get signed by EMI, they're going to take care of it all. And I never imagined that actually if I had my own label, that I would do that job better mm. and I would earn more money from it. And it's, it's, it's a strange feeling. And I, 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 would, I would never, never want to be with, with another label again because staff are chopping and changing. They've got their own interests and, and so forth. So very much that taught me to be confident with having my own label and, and, and realizing and understanding the industry about how, how, how it kind of, kind of works. You know, and that's, that's really the, the, the exciting part for me to have that independence, 
working with other musicians, developing the label. And we then found um, at one point, as I'm sure you remember, CD sales started falling. Yeah, downloads became the thing, yeah. And the shops where we used to sell our CDs because of, of, of the Performing Rights Society, who they are there to help musicians, but they were then hitting the shops to pay for playing, playing music live in their shops, which is how we, we sold our music. And a lot of the shopkeepers, they were like, well, we don't want to pay this. We don't want to, we don't want to pay this money. So we won't take the music. So we were going through this, this situation where shops weren't selling our music anymore. And that was our only outlet. CD sales were, were, were getting smaller, smaller. And there was this talk about downloads, you know, sort of taking over. And the problem with downloads is, is once put somebody's downloaded it, that's kind of, kind of it, you know, a bit like a, a CD. So although my music's always been played, you know, again and again and again, it's like it's only played once from my point of view when somebody buys it because I don't get any repeats. You know, people that are playing playing my music in in their homes or, or, or you know therapy places or spas or anything like that. I didn't I didn't benefit from that. But then when this thing called streaming came along, which there's a lot of musicians who when they're signed to record companies they don't get very very good deals. They might be on fifteen percent, for example. Yeah. And, and the record companies are notorious for not even sort of accounting properly in this kind of thing. You just don't get enough streams, then you're not going to earn anything off it, which is why you hear about these artists all sort of complaining they don't, they don't earn very much money from it. Whereas my music as an artist is used again and again and again and again. There's all these spas and all these places. And, um, you know, people will go to bed with my music at night. And the interesting thing is that even though I've produced a, a lot of albums, I think I've, over the years I've, I've lost count, I've produced over 200 albums, I think, over the 30 years I've been doing it, there would be somebody that would just be into one particular album. And I remember saying to them, they go to bed with it every night, would you, would you like to hear my new album? They've got, no, 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 we like this. We put this on every night. They never get sick of it. Same with therapists. They have their, like, Reiki is a big area for my music. They will play the same album. Time and time and time again, their clients like it. Don't you ever get sick of it? No, it's wonderful. I know when to move my hands into different positions. So, of course, when streaming came along and they were, they're, they're playing it again and again and again, I'm getting so many streams that, and the income that comes in from that, I'm liking the 1% of what recording artists are in, in the world, like these big, 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 big artists are, you know. But that's what I, I love about your story. And it's so much of your story you've told now that I love, but in particular, the fact that you are prolifically successful, but very few people who listen, you know, so prolifically to you will actually be aware of who Llewellyn is. No, they don't know who I am. And, and yeah. you know, it's, it's like, it, because it does a particular job. Yeah. It's like, it's like somebody says, give me a paracetamol or aspirin. They go, here you are. They don't go, oh, it must be, it must, well, I suppose Aladdin's famous. But they don't go, oh, it must be Boots or whatever. Yeah. It's a paracetamol, yeah. you know, and it does the job. And like with me, yes, they are going through and they're choosing, but it just happens to be my music that they like, but they're not interested in, it's not like I'm a pop star or put on the wall or anything like that. I just do the job. But it, well, I remember when I was at um, the record label New World Music, they told me it took about, five albums that people would own before they suddenly went they're all by the same guy and then they would then they would actively start seeking me out you know but yeah it took several out imagine that with elton john you know sort of like he's got people have got five albums before they go oh i obviously quite like this guy i might buy his next album <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> and can i ask you a question there is, uh, is any part of you so the so the, so the younger version of you that was you know seeking the being signed to Virgin you know having that recognition is there a part of you that is disappointed that you haven't got that recognition or is the self satisfaction that you have made music work for you is that enough? It's a good question because during the pandemic. Um, there was this thing about how 80s music was coming back and, and, and all this kind of thing. I think The Weeknd had a track, didn't they, which was Blinding Lights or, or yeah. something. Which was, and I think it's the most streamed ever kind of, kind of track. To me, I listened to it. I thought, well, that's got that kind of aha 
sort of do, which is what I was programming back in the in the eighties. You know, now people are sampling that, and I I kind of think you know relating to your question that that there is this part of me that was frustrated that I didn't become a pop star because it was something that I felt I could have been, I could have had the opportunity, but it just didn't work out. You know, whether it's destiny that I went this other path, which is helping more people. Maybe if I'd become this pop star, I wouldn't have been able to cope. God knows what I would have ended up with. Mm. And today I would have just been somebody if I went, look, I've, I've got a new song. And you'd be like, no, just play your hit from the 80s and, yeah. and, and, and shut up. Yeah. You know? so, so I don't know. There, there was this. So, so during the, the, the pandemic, what I did was I, I, I returned to doing that. And I did, did what, you know, it, I think I'm, I'm a better singer than listening back to the demos. I'm a better singer now because there's more voice control. I'm a better lyricist. I'm a producer now and I can produce better songs. And I kind of had this, I don't know if it's a naive idea, but I kind of thought our generation is the first kind of generation that's kind of not, not gone to the stage of, you know, listening to Val Dunican and wanting to put slippers on. We still want to rock, and we've got the Rolling Stones who are yeah. still rocking. You know, we, you know, it's not like suddenly loud music is oh turn it off. Yeah. You know, we 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 like. In, in fact, the music that we want to turn off is probably the the offensive rapping, you know, lyrics, and that's the, the sort of thing. And the kids want to own that because yeah. the kids want to own something that the mum and dads don't like. Yeah. You know, but there's this kind of weird blurring that we still like rock and rock and pop. Yeah, so totally I, agree. So I kind of thought with this, you know unfinished business that I think you're relating to inside of me that I didn't get that recognition. Um, so I did that quite seriously. I, I, I recorded a lot of tracks, um, a lot of songs that, that, that I wrote. My voice gets compared a lot with George Michael because he was a big influence in, in, in the 80s. But I called myself, um, again, my surname. I, I changed my name. I was using different names. And I found a very kind of spiritual, successful kind of name, which wasn't that successful. But anyway, it said it was spiritually successful, called Zada, Z-A-D-A. So I called myself James Zada. And I did it properly. I put it through um, a label, which, which was my own label, because I've got the distribution, which I have through my relaxation music. And I, and I got PR companies, big PR companies that work with, with promoting and plugging. Spent a fortune on promoting. And I got feedback from even people like Radio 2, which was the station that I'm promoting. And they said, you know, James is a Radio 2 artist, but there's no hype. There's no, there's no reason to play him. Why would our listeners, you know, at the end of the day, you've got Ed Sheeran or you've got James Arder. They'd rather listen. And it's like I couldn't get that, couldn't get that platform yeah. right. And I then, Attraction, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't get it. And then, then I spoke uh, with another uh, PR company, which is a, he's known as the Bishop, actually. You'll probably be watching this. Lovely guy, Keith Bishop. And he said, you know, you're, you're missing something here. And I went, what's that? He goes, you're missing your story is Llewellyn. He says, that's extraordinary. You know, not, not James Arden. Maybe that's further down the line. But the fact of what you've achieved and, and your journey and where you've come from and what you do, that's, that's what we need to concentrate on. And I also do um, painting in the same way that I do my music. I tend to sort of draw it from somewhere like a kind of inspiration, you know. And since working with uh, with Keith and promoting it with with the Llewellyn side of things, it's it's done really well. He he got me the the awareness in the Daily Mail, um, you know, newspaper, and lots of other opportunities that that are coming up. You know, things which are leading to possible film scores and things like that. You know, it's 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 great. You know, and I've also been working with um, Jeff Chagrin, who's Keith. Do you yeah. remember Keith Chagrin? I do. Yeah, multiple swap shop. Yeah, he's got a. T <laughs> I didn't know he had a twin brother. I did. And all, yes, and, and also and also Jeff's sister who sadly passed. Is yeah. Janice, Janice Long. You know, he's got an incredibly talented son called Hugo. I'm just going to see a show in a couple of weeks' time, and it's like your son's in this. He goes, oh yeah, you know, you know, incredibly modest, gifted family, and um, so working with all these people as a result of what I was doing with the James Arda, I think I'm starting to come to terms with realising that the life that I have now has suited me a lot better. And I think it's more becoming of me uh, at my age to be a composer than it is maybe a pop star. Mm. But I, I don't know. There is still that part of me inside that feels a bit sad that I didn't get that, that recognition. But you are – sorry, carry on. I was going to go, however, I do, have a, I do have a record at the moment which I'm singing on with my wife. 
which is going around all the all the clubs and it, it might be a club club hit it's a thing it's called um magical flame and it's 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 a bit like i've done with um you know with the elton john that they took some old ballads and they put together with dua lipa oh yes they're fantastic yeah so i've i've taken uh, classic george michael different corner with Scylla Black, something tells me something's going to happen tonight. And I put those together with this beat. And there's a, um, a guy called Cutmore. He's famous for working on Moves Like Jagger. Do you remember that? that yes, record? I do. Yeah. And he's produced it. And that's the record that's going around the clubs at the moment. moment. We're hoping that might turn. So, and I've given that a different name. We call yeah. ourselves the Wax Club. I'm always, I'm always putting my name on the different names. And it's like the Wax Club featuring James Zarda, you know, sort of on it. But I picked that George Michael track because when I when I sing, my voice sounds very much like you know, George. <laughs> I'm going to have a listen to that definitely. And what what's really interesting is you know you're talking about the connection with the 1980s and there being a resurgence in yeah. interest of music from the 80s. And I think that was possibly even before the the pandemic because you had the likes of Banana Rama, Spando Ballet, you know, yeah. going out and doing you know summer gigs, etc. Well, my best friend in Wales, she is fifty four now, okay. and her and her seventeen year old son go around all the old. They've gone to see The Cure recently, yeah. and I can't think who else off the top of my brain at the moment, but. He is very much into the music from the 80s. Yeah. And isn't it fantastic that, exactly as you said, that rather than being embarrassed by, you know, our children being embarrassed by the music that we're now into versus what they're into, actually, the two have segued together. Right. Yeah. And we yeah. have it in common. That's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, even Harry Styles is, I think, his big record as it was. It's got that same, you know, do, 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 yeah. as it was. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it is and interesting, isn't it? That's really interesting. Yeah, really, really interesting. So what do you think your dad would be saying to you now? You know, having encouraged you as lots of parents do there's a fantastic book called rich dad poor dad where the the poor dad who's actually the biological dad of the author encouraged him to go down the normal route school university proper yeah. job versus the rich dad which was a mentor that encouraged the chap to be entrepreneurial to follow his creativity to go and not necessarily follow somebody else's path but to follow his own what do you think your dad would say to you now? I, 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 well, my dad was a product of his time. Yeah. So, you know, there, there was slightly coming through like the nouveau riche at that time, which like builders that was suddenly, because I remember in, in the road that we lived in, there was a builder that, that bought, a, bought a house property there. And all the other kind of neighbours didn't want to have anything to do with him. But my dad, because of him, because he'd come from working class, and this, this chat who was called Ray, he always said, you know, he loved that about my dad, that he was the only one that, that, that welcomed him. So, you know, there, there was that kind of working class kind of thing. Whenever I went with my dad anywhere, it would always be hello, squire, and he would chat with anyone. And my wife says, I've, I've, I've got that. It's like if the gardener comes here, I'm talking to the gardener for an hour and I still pay him. You know, I just chat, chat, chat to anybody, you know, like a taxi driver or whatever. So and I've got that, got that from, from growing up with, with my dad. But my dad was very much about a product of that time that he could only see what worked for him. Mm -hmm. And he was giving us that opportunity. He worked so hard. And part of that was to give his sons and, and, and his daughter as well, because I had a, a, I've got a sister, as you remember, you know, talking about introducing me to the music and, and my brother. He wanted to just give us the best that he could. And I think his frustration was that you're just wasting it, wasting it away. And I, I kind of felt that with my own daughter, I know she was battling with a cystic fibrosis and she's still, still, she's well today. She just got married actually. She's 28. Oh, wow. But, and doing great, you know. And I think that with, with what I wanted to do with that was not put pressure on her and say, you know, look, I've done this for you. I think parents do do that. You know, you don't realize how lucky you are because, you know, they're born into it. They're not going to know any different. And probably they're not going to appreciate it. Like I can appreciate now looking back on what my dad was trying to do, you know, and the frustration. But what I, where I find my peace with, with, with my father is that, yes, he would be pleased with me, but he would say, 
you were very lucky it worked out for you. Mm-hmm. You're lucky it worked out for you. And my, my brother, who's a bit like my, my dad, he would say the same thing, oh, you, you, you're lucky. To which I would probably reply, oh, did I find it in a cracker then, did I? You know, wasn't anything to do with my hard work. So yeah. there, there's that, that, that pull that's going on there. But I do know that my dad, his plans were that he was going to retire. He was going to move to North Wales in this cottage. I was going to do the cottage up in North Wales. He was going to move to Wales. And he wanted to write, um, he loves sort of Desmond Bagley books. I don't know if you remember him as a writer. Bagley. Yeah, he's kind of crime through this. Yeah. And he was going to write. He was going to write some books. How cool would have, would have that been? So if you think about it, living in Wales, doing, a, doing something creative, I think he would have looked at me and thought, wow, you're, you're, living, you're living the dream that I wanted. You yeah. know? And he loved music. Unfortunately, he, never, he, would, he would have been my biggest fan of my, my relaxation music. And he would have adored you know, the songs that I would have done. Because I remember he, he loved he loved the Nolan sisters and country music because Nolans were, were before they did. Ah, man, man, they were country and western. Right? I didn't know that. Yeah, he had when they used to wear their pinky dresses and things. He had all of that and Crystal Gale and Dolly Parton. He loved country music and some of the songs that I did would have you know crossed over. He would he loved melody and bless him he 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 fancied a Hammond organ. He he, he rented this Hammond organ over Christmas time. The plan. He didn't get a go on it because I just hogged it all the time, you know. So he he was, you know, he, he was he was very supportive of the musical part. But I think he wanted in return for me to knuckle down and and be all right. Because all he wanted for me was to just have nice things in my life, to have a nice home and a comfort. Yeah. And I have that. So I think he's he's pleased. I think he would have been upset if I was struggling and and I and I and I and I didn't have nice things in my life then he would have been, you're a bloody fool. I gave you a good start and you wasted it. That's what he would have said. That's all he wants. It's yeah. nothing about, I told you so. You know, that's what you want for your children, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I um, think you'd be might, mighty, mighty proud that actually you've plotted your, your own path. You followed, you know, your passions and you had belief that it was going to work out, basically. But in waiting for it to work out the way that you wanted it to, you went and utilised those other skills that you had around marketing and creating an idea and seeing it through. So I think your dad's probably you know, up there now, actually go, good on you, son. You, you did it. And I think that's something really, Wait, really special. Nice. That's a nice idea. I mean, with, with the funny thing is, I remember when I went to do the advertising job, I remember I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't really see myself having the confidence to talk on the telephone. I remember when they were doing sort of training on the phone, I, I, it, the, the manager would be there and I'd, I'd ring him up and I'd go, hello. <laughs> and he'd be like, yes. Can you say, can I speak to the person who's in charge? Oh, yeah. Can I speak to the person? And it was like absolutely dreadful. I was thinking, I'm so nervous. I can't do this. But I think that period when I was working and doing that, which was about four years, that helped tremendously in later on when I was dealing with the chairman of the record company, being able to build a rapport over the telephone, being able to build those relationships, which even today, communicating with, with you now, you know, that's all come from the confidence of, of being a salesperson, I think, and, and, and mixing with people. Yeah. So if, if, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have developed those, those, those skills, you know. Yeah. I've heard so many people say that, that actually sales training, you know, when they were younger is what has given them the success they have seen in later life because it's been pivotal to creating that sense of confidence. It's interesting as well. And also one of the things I I, I found fascinating is that like with blue chip company people that make decisions and people that maybe have smaller businesses, you'd think that the smaller businesses, the people would be more approachable, they'd be friendly. Um, and yet that wasn't the case. I, I, I learned that people are people and some of the nicest people. And this seems to be almost in, in, in the industry I'm in at the moment. The people who are kind of very successful and, and approachable, they're nice. Whereas the ones that are kind of got their insecurities and kind of jealousies, they're, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating sort of, comparison absolutely absolutely so how can people reach out to you Llewellyn what's the best way for people to connect with you 
Um, if they want to find out about my music, if 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 you go through Ellen on all the the streaming channels like Spotify, you know platforms and i guess they, they call them nowadays so if you're with apple music you just look for llm you'll, you'll you'll find me um deezer if you're in america pandora um a lot of people you like spotify so you can find my music on there and it lists god almost everything that i've done on there you can have, have have a listen to it if you want to find out some more information about me i have got a website there's um a, it's called relaxationman.com but i know there's some, some details you can find um my art is llm art dot com so you can go and see the paintings and things that i do you might might find that interesting the pop star side <laughs> the failed pop star side if if you like something 80s with a bit of a george michael um vibe to it um james zarda.com you know i'm also on on spotify and all the streaming platforms as, as james zarda if you want something to, to boogie to it's got got soul and also some nice ballads and things as well and nobody needs to worry because we'll have all those details in the show notes. So people don't have to remember the different names that you go by. Uh, it's all there in the show notes so people can easily connect with you. Brilliant. Yeah, thank you very much. No, thank you very much. I am just sorry that we only have, you know, kind of 45 to 50 minutes for an episode because I could have probably spoken to you all afternoon. <laughs> but I know that our listeners will have loved hearing your story and I know they'll enjoy listening to your music. And as a trained hypnotherapist myself, oh. I use that in my business. I'm going to take a listen as well. There we go. <laughs> thank you very, thank much. You very much. Take care. Thanks very much for listening to the latest episode of the Let's Talk Money and More podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to better understand your relationship with money, then please head to the resources section on my website, the Money Confidence Academy, and download my monthly money mindset audit. This will allow you to create a benchmark for where your relationship with money is right now and allow you to continue to measure it on a monthly basis as you do the inner work to improve it. You will also find a copy of my Money Archetypes Assessment at the same time, which will allow you to start to really understand which are your three primary money archetypes driving your relationship with money and how to use this information to make, spend, keep and invest more money. Or if you are a female online business owner, why not join my free Money Confidence community over on Facebook? A link to the group and other ways to connect with me can be found in the show notes. Finally, if you have enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do tell others about it. And I would love it if you rated it and gave a review.